Hey, Seamus, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, it's good to be back. Yeah. Uh, for everyone in the audience, we're re-recording this because I cussed Lauren out in the last interview. Yeah, and then he went into this whole rant about women in the workplace. It was super awkward. Um, but you know what? I'm not in the... <laughs> it was unbecoming of me. No, to be uh... completely honest, I thought the people at CRTV told you to prepare that I'm a diva. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to get my way. If anything goes even slightly wrong, you're hearing about it. Right. Um, and, you know, for, for transparency's sake, I, I will admit we are redoing this interview because uh, audio on my end, uh, like, things didn't sound good when we played back. So, Seamus, I, I hope people... I sounded who... like an idiot last time, and she hit me up, and she's like, Seamus, you sound like a moron. We need to redo this. Try to sound less stupid. Those were her words to me. Yeah, let's, let's go with that. Let's go with you screwing up. I like that narrative a lot better, but in any case, let the people know that you are gracious for coming back. Um, so, take two... You are on YouTube, the political sphere, which I like to call home, where I started out as well. And what makes your channel different is that, you know, you do animations, which are a lot more fun than a lot of the talking head stuff we see so often. Uh, your channel is called Freedom Tunes. You have these cute little animations about uh, a minute, a half to five minutes, uh, pretty short. They're released weekly. And you recently did this one that I thought was really great about pizza and income inequality. Now, for anyone who's thinking, how do those two relate? Uh, we're going to insert a clip of it just here. I'm really hungry and exhausted after installing that new oven, so I'm just going to take an extra slice if that's cool. <gasps> now I'm only getting three slices? I have less pizza than before. That is just not accurate. Buy the slices the wrong way of measuring it, because the slices have increased in size. I ain't got no darn pizza, friendo Nintendo. The hungry get hungry in this capitalist kitchen, bourgeois swan. But you have more pizza than you used to. So income inequality is a really hot topic among millennials, and it's interesting because I think we're actually at a point right now where we focus more on income inequality than actual just raw poverty. Um, why, why are young people especially so concerned with not just how they're doing, but how they're doing in relation to how the richest people are doing? Why is that such a thing for us? That's a good question. There seems to be a good deal of envy. Now, this isn't the first time I've done a video on income inequality, and it's certainly not the first time I've spoken publicly about it. And one thing I've learned throughout the years in a bit of data I picked up while researching my previous income inequality video is that if you and your family are subsisting off of more than $30,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of the world economy, meaning most people in the United States are fabulously wealthy. And even if they're not technically in that top 1% because they make less than $30,000 a year, they're still doing very well compared to most people throughout the world. And they're certainly doing tremendously well compared to the human condition throughout history. So we have a tremendous amount. And there is reason not only to be optimistic, but to also be very grateful for what we have today. And that's not a call to stagnation or to say that we shouldn't care about improving these things, but it's important to recognize that even though we're not living in a utopia and we never will, things are a lot better than they were yesterday. And they could be a lot better tomorrow if we're willing to incrementally improve things as opposed to throwing out the entire system because we're jealous about the fact that people have more than us. Uh, Jordan Peterson talks about the Pareto distribution quite a bit. It's not a systemic problem. It's just a fact of nature that once a person begins to accumulate resources, they'll begin to accumulate at an exponential rate. That doesn't necessarily mean that person is robbing from other people because this isn't a zero-sum game. And what we have found is that over the past few decades, though the percentage of GDP that those in the lowest income bracket has, has actually shrunk in terms of percentage. It's grown in terms of wealth adjusted for inflation, so they actually have more money than they used to, even though it's a smaller piece of the pie. And on top of that, 
the kinds of goods and services they're able to purchase with that income has increased exponentially. So one thing I mentioned in the video is that if you looked back to the 1980s, very few poor families would have cable or multiple televisions. They might not even have microwaves. We don't see microwaves as a luxury good, but they were until very recently. And that's one thing that capitalism is great with taking something which is luxurious, which only a small percentage of people can afford, and then finding a way through market mechanisms to distribute it more widely to the largest possible customer base in order to maximize profits. Mm -hmm. And that concept is actually a really interesting one because I think the whole idea of luxury goods, what exactly is a luxury good? Yeah. Because we are so spoiled with luxury goods in this day and age, um, a lot of people have, I guess, become a little bit naive about exactly what qualifies as a necessity and what doesn't. Um, I made a video uh, a while ago, this is at least a year ago, talking about uh, the idea which a lot of people have on the left been raising that things like refrigerators, um, internet, uh, I think probably they would even include microwaves, uh, should now be qualified as necessities for people yes. who, for example, are living on government assistance or in government housing, right? It should be a necessity that these people have high-speed Wi-Fi. I mean, I guess to go with that, you'd have to have the computer as well, refrigerators and stuff like that. Um, are, are we being, I guess, cold-hearted and unrealistic to say that those things aren't necessities in this modern world? Because, I mean, it would suck to not have... A refrigerator so is, is it, it no so of course the irony is the reason so many people have these goods such as microwaves and television sets and refrigerators is specifically because we traditionally have not viewed them as necessities and we've said this thing is so unimportant that we're going to allow market mechanisms to determine its distribution and as a result it's been distributed efficiently and reasonably and over time more people have accumulated these goods whereas as soon as the government becomes involved with distribution the price the price goes up generally the quality goes down we've seen this time and time again one thing many people don't realize is uh, with healthcare for example the spending crisis didn't begin to occur until Medicare and Medicaid were instituted which were two single-payer healthcare systems and programs which still exist in the United States today and as a result healthcare costs have skyrocketed so people talk about whether or not something is a necessity I think not only is that conversation a bit of a distraction, but it misses the point entirely. The question isn't how do we view this good or service philosophically, it's which system is going to allow for the most people to have this thing. And you might have lofty ideals, you might want to claim that X, Y, and Z are rights that everyone is entitled to them, but if you don't have a proper system of distribution in place which is actually going to get those goods to the people, then your opinions don't actually mean anything. There's a, a great quote. In, I'm spacing on who initially said it, but it's something along the lines of, we judge too often policy based on its intentions rather than its results. And if your intention is to say something like a microwave or a refrigerator or even food uh, is a human right because everyone's entitled to those things, unfortunately, you're more likely to end up with a system where less people have those things because they're not taken care of by the most efficient processes possible. It just, it sounds so much better to offer people a hypothetical utopia than admitting that reality is yeah. imperfect. And yeah, um, you know, this system may result in some people not having things, but it results in the greatest number possible having access to things like these luxury goods. Now, you mentioned healthcare, and that's an interesting one. Whether you're on the left or the right, I think there's the only consensus possibly that we have at all today is that the current system is, isn't working, right? I mean, things are too no. expensive, it's not accessible, right? Everyone can agree with that. Um, in response to that, I've seen a lot of people lift up places like, let's say, Sweden, uh, you know, Finland, Denmark, these Scandinavian countries. I think less so Canada now. I, that used to be a really popular one, but, you know, they've kind of come out with the, I guess, the 
healthcare results in Canada and people have seen the wait times and I think they're kind of backing yes. off about holding Canada up to be this utopia. They're kind of focusing on the Scandinavian countries now. But I mean, do, do you think that because people are actually like, hey, we see these practices working in these other countries. I mean, that's not really hypothetical that it's, you know, the Scandinavian yeah. model exists. Why not just adopt that? So one reason is that we simply couldn't afford it. I'll get into the dynamics of why that is the case, despite the fact that we're often told that these socialist utopias or really social democracies are able to afford these things. But the bottom line is the Medicaid, Medicare for All plan, which was proposed by Ocasio-Cortez, uh, would essentially double federal spending. And this is on top of an $800 billion, approaching $1 trillion annual deficit. So we can't afford to add that much spending without going either immensely into debt or doubling our taxes, and it would likely result in both. We would probably have to do both of those things. But beyond that, the reason these socialist nations or quasi-socialist nations, really, it's more accurate to describe them as social democracies are able to afford these kinds of things is because they don't have to pay for a military. They're essentially comfortable allowing us uh, to protect them. And even if they aren't, that's just the status quo at this moment. The United States spends an immense amount on our military. And part of the reason we do so is because none of the other countries in the West really have a significant militaristic power on the world stage. And we need to be the ones to uphold and protect not only our values, but the values of every other Western European nation in the world. So reason one, we couldn't afford it. Uh, another important thing to consider is that, as I mentioned, the healthcare spending crisis didn't occur until single-payer systems were implemented in the United States. And while correlation is not necessarily causation, there are really logical lines we can draw to explain why that's increased the cost of healthcare. You remove the uh, demand from the marketplace in a traditional sense, and so market equilibrium is distorted as a result. In other words, consumers aren't able to shop around for prices. It's more based on, on insurance companies. And of course, this is all more complicated than that. There's also the fact that Healthcare benefits are tied to an employment. One reason for that is because FDR froze wages during the New Deal. Another reason is that uh, healthcare benefits and other benefits from employers are not taxed on the same level that general employment is. If I'm not mistaken, they aren't taxed at all. So, for example, if I have $100,000 to hire a new staff member, I could give them $100,000 a year, in which case they're going to end up with sixty to 70000 after taxes. Or I could give them $50,000 a year in benefits, and those benefits aren't taxed at all and then give them 50,000 a year and they get 40,000 of that. So now they're getting $90,000 in value as opposed to 60 to $70,000 uh, in value. And as a result, they have more. So th that's another reason why healthcare is connected to employment and that's a problem. The solution is to deregulate, to get government out of the system. Uh, and again, I believe for the reasons I've laid out, hopefully I've made a somewhat convincing case and I'm hoping to boil it down into a video in the future. I've done some work on this for the Foundation for Economic Education, if you guys want to check that out. But that's my incredibly windy and rambling spiel on why a universal healthcare system cannot work in the U.S. And one more thing I've just recalled as I'm wrapping up here. Everyone criticizes the United States healthcare system, not because of its quality, but because of access. So we know that before the Affordable Care Act was implemented, um, tens of thousands of people had migrated from Canada to the United States simply to purchase our health care, mm -hmm. despite the fact that they're getting it for free in Canada. It takes a lot to get someone Quote, to free. their country. Yeah, free. Yeah. So they're already paying taxes for it in Canada. In theory, they're already paying for it in Canada. And they said, you know what, on top of this health care I'm already paying for, I'm going to leave my country and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, potentially tens of thousands of dollars on this in another country because the quality of care is better. The problem with health care in the United States is not quality it's access. I would argue that problem is a result of government action. 
course, people are going to disagree. But at the end of the day, everyone wants to criticize the big, bad capitalist system. No one wants to criticize the fact that most of the innovations in healthcare being used by this socialist utopia were developed in the evil capitalist United States healthcare marketplace. Mm -hmm. And actually, I mean, I have heard people um, comment on the healthcare outcomes in the United States, but even then, they fail to take into account that the United States has a much higher rate of like diabetes, obesity in general, and all of those related yes. illness than any other country. So, I mean, regardless of the healthcare system that's in place, that's gonna show a effect in in things like life expectancy and, and things like that. Now, another video you did. This was a really good one. You might do, can I can I just I, I hate to interrupt. Go go um, for it. I, I just want to drop one thing in there. I'm glad you mentioned obesity. That's almost the shorter answer. Seamus, why can't we have the same healthcare system that Denmark has? Because Denmark isn't the fattest country in the world. <laughs> yeah, that, that's one reason. Right, but one of one of many. And uh, okay, so another video you did that I thought was really really great and nice and spicy, controversial. You're too right. The okay, me too big thing and uh you know oh. it's one of those things we can't really talk about without being labeled as a rape apologetic by someone out there but there's this statistic that gets thrown around all the time it's that only two percent of rapes are are false similar to other numbers uh, of falsely reported crimes like theft whatever um so shouldn't we with that in mind just take the stance of just believing uh, a, a victim rather than not in, in case we end up you know letting a rapist go right because if it's only two percent that are found to be false then the odds are in our favor by just condemning any man who has an accusation against him. Absolutely. So before I even dig into why that statistic is misleading, obviously, as you know, our justice system is not based on probable outcome. We don't say because X percentage of these cases uh, turn out to be founded in evidence. In reality, we should uh, we should err on the side of caution and prosecute that percentage of people accused of that crime. Right. Uh, but even though, even if that were the case. The 2% number is extremely misleading, uh, bordering on flat-out false. So in the video I did on this, I did my best to ensure the research was solid. I consulted with people who are better with stats than I am to ensure that my interpretation was as solid as possible. But what I found is that number comes from statistics, which found that in all the sources are in the video, if you guys want to check that out. But 2 to 8% of rapes reported to the police were proven to be false. So here's the problem with saying that means 2% of rape accusations in general are false. To start with the most obvious reason, 2% is not the same as 2 to 8%. You're either dealing with something closer to 1 in 50 to something closer to 1 in 10, which is a huge disparity. Secondly, this is a sample reported to the police. We're only dealing with people who came to law enforcement with their accusation. We don't have any data on the likelihood of the rape charge or accusation being accurate if it's simply reported to the court of public opinion as opposed to actual law enforcement. And that's not, of course, to say women who don't go to law enforcement are lying. There are a lot of good reasons women don't go to law enforcement. It's very difficult to not only be raped, but to go through the justice system afterwards, mm -hmm. because the reality is it's very difficult to prove something like consent. And unfortunately, many people who are raped don't see justice. So it's horrific. I, I just want to throw those caveats in there. I'm not trying to shame anyone who doesn't go to the police. But if you didn't go to the police, you're not included in the statistics that we're discussing. But on top of that, not only is it said that it's 2% when it's 2 to 8%, and not only is it said of accusations in general this is true, as opposed to only accusations reported to the police, but they lack the epistemological humility to acknowledge that we have no idea whether or not a rape has occurred or whether or not the accusation is founded in a large percentage of these cases. So to just explain how this works, 2 to 8% of accusations are proven to be false. 
some other small but difficult to hash out percentage are proven to be true. Then there's a large percentage in between, but we have no idea if the accusation is true or false because there wasn't enough evidence to say one way or the other. And so to say that only 2% of rape accusations are false because only 2 to 8% are proven to be false would be as silly as saying, say, only 10% of rape accusations are true because only 10% are proven to be true and 90% are false accusations. And by the way, that's what they used to do. There were uh, statistics people used suggesting 90% of accusations were false because they were doing this same stupid thing. But, but in reverse. We, yeah, we need to take... Uh, oftentimes, I think people think they're doing the opposite of stupid when they're just doing stupid in the opposite direction. And that's what we've <laughs> done here. We've taken these same bad uh, interpretive approaches and applied them to the data a bit differently and assumed that that meant we corrected the error when we just created a new one. Mm -hmm. I like that saying. I may, I may steal that. Now, listening to you, you're obviously a very analytical guy, care a lot okay. about those little things that Ben Shapiro likes to call facts. Um, that's facts that's. Don't care about your feelings. <laughs> Okay, anyone watching this, another thing, you have to check out his uh, video on Ben Shapiro talking. The impression, spot on. The speed is just godlike, dare I say. Um, but we don't really see that kind of, I guess, creativity uh, among, I guess, right-of-center media. It, it, it tends to be the, the more liberal-leaning people who are, yeah. you know, just killing it with things like animation, music, movies, and things like that. Um, you're, you're kind of, I guess, an outlier in that way. How did you become how you are interested in, in all these political things, uh, but, but also, obviously, this creative talent? That's not something we see a lot. Lots of childhood trauma. <laughs> oh, no, I, I kid. Trauma honestly, creates great genius, though, so yeah. there's that. That's true. I'll go around saying trauma then. No, honestly, I, I had a really great childhood. I think I'm just a special snowflake. Uh, and I, I kid once again, I think if there's one thing I want to sound like a broken record on, it's this. As libertarians, conservatives, people who fall outside of the status quo of the dominant media culture, and that which we're told to believe uh, by society as a whole, uh, again, particularly the media, we complain about the fact that we're not represented in media. Because that's true. We aren't. But then when our children tell us they want to pursue a career in the arts, we laugh at them and tell them they have to uh, pursue a more realistic career. Well, you got to be the change you want to see in the world. And again, as conservatives, libertarians, and those who are now coming into our camp, we call them moderate liberals or new centrists, we're people who tend to believe more or less in individual responsibility. If you want for there to be more conservative voices in media, you have to encourage the conservatives around you to go into media. Mm -hmm. And that might include yourself, your kids, your friends. I don't know. But but when someone laughs uh, a conservative off for saying that they're considering pursuing a career in writing or animation or acting or whatever it may be, they're hurting the movement as a whole because we have a big PR problem, man. And we got to work on it. We need more people who are producing compelling and interesting content. And... I believe that's where the future is. I think that's sort of how we're going to try to turn around this culture war uh, by virtue of the fact that they're banning so many conservatives from their platform tells you that we're kind of winning. Mm -hmm. All right. We're, we're a threat to them at this point. Right? It's It sounds counterintuitive, but it's a good sign that we're starting to get banned. That means we're having an impact. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know what? As, as someone who I'm going to be hopefully in the not too distant future having kids and, you know, you, you make me think, what would I do if my son, daughter, whatever says, hey, mom, I, I want to be a singer. I want to be an actor. Now, I'm not going to lie. The like a Asian B conservative part of me is like, mm, just, hey, don't you want to be a doctor, though? Like, right. But, you know, at the same time, I mean, I'm in, I guess what you could call the media business. And uh, I think the whole 
idea of things like animation, I think these creative works, they tend to be less stable financially, which is, I think, if you're a conservative yes. person who tends toward, uh, you know, financial conservatism or that kind of responsibility, that's going to be scary in and of itself. But thankfully, actually, and what I hope uh, in the future will empower and embolden more conservatives to go down the creative route is that because of things like crowdfunding resources, uh, things like Patreon, uh, we, we are able to at least add some degree of stability in terms of knowing how much month to month we may bring in for revenue. Uh, you're on Patreon. If anyone wants yes. to support you, they can go there. Um, but that also kind of brings the question of what do we do when these platforms, and you mentioned, uh, decide to kick us off, right? As Sarah yes. Avocad, who's this huge YouTube voice, he's not even, you know, he's a centrist, right? He's not this, some extreme right winger. He was recently booted. Uh, Milo Yiannopoulos just got booted off, or whatever you may think of him. It's It's scary that this is happening. Is that something that concerns you at all as someone who is creative and works independently? No, they love me. They never do that to me. There's <laughs> no reason to be scared. In all honesty, of course, it's something I fear. I've been interested in looking into building alternative crowdsourcing platforms or finding other ways to have the revenue come in as opposed to using Patreon. Now, I'm not jumping ship from Patreon just yet. I'm still going to use it for the time being because it's really difficult to find a paywall that works for you. And I will say this, if you're a fan of mine or Roaming Millennials and you're wigged out by what's happening and you consider deleting your Patreon account, I totally understand where you're coming from, but just understand Patreon only keeps 5% of your pledge, whereas we keep 95%. So unless you're finding uh, an alternate platform to fund us on, we're actually being hurt more than Patreon is when people jump ship. I just want to put that out there. You're entitled to not donate. I totally get that. But please understand that uh, if there's no backup plan. And if you want to delete your pledge because you're unhappy with our content, totally fine. But if it's because you're unhappy with Patreon, I really uh, implore you to find some other way to fund us because without the funding, this just doesn't get done. Mm -hmm. Right. And I, I get that a lot. I mean, anytime someone I know when I think Faith Goldie got booted, I got a ton of people it happens every round someone gets kicked yeah. off of people saying I can't support Patreon. Therefore, I'm canceling my pledge. And I, like, I'm always like y your money, do whatever feels right to you. But at the same time, you know, maybe you should be aware that you are this is a kick in the pants <laughs> and probably yeah. not much of a deal uh, to Patreon. But hey, uh, you know, you're on there. Hopefully, if, if people want to support your work, go check them out now before it's too late. Just kidding. Yes. Knock on wood won't happen. Uh, where else can people find your work? You can also find me at paypal.me slash freedom tunes. And I have an Etsy shop where I sell freedom tunes t-shirts, which also helps us grow the brain. Okay, cool. Uh, are you on social media? Have you gotten the Twitter boot yet or? No. So I don't invest a whole lot of time or resources into promoting my Twitter just because, as far as I'm aware, they seem to be the worst social media giant on free speech, and that's pretty bad. So there isn't much of a point in building up a platform right. or an audience on a platform if they're just going to ban me as soon as I have a, a meaningful impact. So if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Seamus underscore Coughlin, and that's spelled Seamus Coughlin. I'm sure you'll have it spelled in the description somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, please follow me there if you'd like. I've also got Facebook, facebook.com slash freedomtunes. And then there's the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash freedomtunes, T-O-O-N-S, I should mention, not T-U-N-E-S. Uh, and you can check me out there, see my lovely cartoons. And I also should mention, well, I started out doing Freedom Tunes mostly solo uh, with occasional help from my friend Pat. I want to mention that there are a lot of really awesome people who contribute to Freedom Tunes now because uploading animation on a weekly schedule means you're going to need some help. It's a team mm -hmm. effort. And while I'm primarily most involved and I do pull crazy hours putting this stuff together, the only reason I'm able to do that is because of the funds I pull in from you guys and because I'm able to pay these really awesome people to do really awesome work. So, again, if not just for me, 
uh, you want to support the artists involved, please, please, please consider donating. And I, I also want to give them a shout out. Right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we do three shows a week here and it's it's live film stuff. So it's a bit easier. I can't even imagine the amount of work that must go into like actually animating, pro like producing all of that, the voice recording, the writing. Yeah. Uh, so kudos to your team for that. Thank and you. again, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. And let me also mention this because I get asked sometimes about the people who help me. I have credits at the end of every video. Um, and I just I ask that you guys watch them just to take in some of the names of the people who have contributed. Oh, well, that's so nice. Yeah, see, I have, like, people who edit my videos and stuff, but uh, they're, they're nameless, so I get to take all of the wow. delicious, delicious credit, unless they I screw up. You. But, again, thank you so much, and I uh, hope to thank see you around you. later. Yeah, thanks so much. I appreciate it.